Welcome to those of you who are freshly arrived today. Hmm. Uh, you should find it easy to join in. The, uh, the rhythm section is already safely at work and you just kind of, you know, take up the beat and chime in. That's uh, what we're doing for the next two weeks. Um, the big sort of grid work is called Satipatthana, the establishments of the four foundations of mindfulness. So the four establishments of mindfulness is maybe the closer to the bone in some ways, with the accent on establishment. So us doing the establishing, uh, us do doing the upatana bits, the bringing things into the presence. Um, as you probably know, there's many ways one can practice Satipatthana. This is a fabulous teaching. It's broad, it's deep, uh, it invites interpretation and allows from uh, practicing from many different vantage points with a different shift of emphasis. I have no um, claims that what I suggest is particularly original or is particularly um, unique. There are many uh, different ways one can make use of this fabulous teaching and I hope that some of the stuff I suggest to you is uh, of use and applicable and that you're willing to hold it and uh, receive it, take it up and and basically run with it um, and see where it takes you and what you can uh, find out about meeting your own mind with this teaching as, a, as an orientation. Much of my understanding of meditation is that this is a relational process. One of the major functions of sati, of mindfulness, is to create, create relationship, to um, deepen such a rela relationship, to make that relationship particularly skillful in ways that are revealing that are uh, bringing about deeper acknowledgement, uh, that bringing about deeper skill in transforming and finally in liberating the mind. The, <clears throat> the basic Indian concept for this project is called bhavana, development culture, uh, the beautiful translation of bringing into being uh, is probably the most broad and the most deep way of understanding this particular job. So we try to bring a culture of mind into being that leads to awakening, that leads away from suffering. Uh, more precisely, not actually so much away from, but actually almost through suffering. Uh, the path is not so much a kind of shying away, but more like a turning into and then going through. Uh, that, seems to, that seems to be the most effective. There is something profoundly counterintuitive in this practice. Our ways of using attention, a function of mind called manasikara, broadly used and equally broadly 
misidentified as mindfulness. Uh, the use of attention, which is part of mindfulness, although not the whole, is highly conditioned by pleasure and by the experience of displeasure and our responses to pleasure and displeasure. And it's not easy to uh, not follow this conditioning. Much of Buddhist mind training is geared to establishing a capacity to attend to something irrespective of its degree of pleasurability or its degree of displeasurability, if you allow me to do that with your English language. Um, so the radicalness of uh, Buddhist meditation practice is the development of a capacity to attend, be with and relate to something that does not flatter and that does not promise gratification and that does not provi uh, promise gra protection against things that are not pleasurable. And that is, uh, as it turns out, not quite easy. It seems that as long as we're swimming with the stream, we don't actually have a clear feeling for the amount of current that, we're, that our stream is having. And it's only when we turn against the stream, only when we start trying to swim towards the source rather than with the current, that we find out how much to pull, you know, how big the traction actually is. So meditation tries to, um, meditation training tries to establish a more realistic understanding of the amount of pull, of the particular brand of the pull, and uh, a training of a skill that makes a type of attention applicable irrespective of gratification and protection against uh, things that are unpleasant or dis yeah. This is um, a lot more tricky than it sounds like because it runs counter, it runs counter to our basic habits. Since we are little, we have learned to maximize getting nice things out of what we do with our attention and avoid things that are not nice. Now, nobody has ever probably taught you this explicitly, but we have a lot of training to um, stir away from that which is not gratifying. Sorry, stir away from that, yeah? To, and, and moving towards that which is gratifying, which, you know, this is a habit that runs pretty deep. It's old, a lot older than neocortical development, for example. As soon as you have a very simple life structures, a couple of amino acids put together, long before it does complicated things like oxygen breathing or sexuality or things like that. Just a very simple thing. A couple of amino acids, you know, little flagella. If it's something nice, it swims through, it's going to turn into and enjoy. And if it's not nice, it's going to move away from. Yeah? If it's toxicity, it goes away from. So this pattern, most germane to even the simplest of life forms still is quite powerfully prevalent in our minds. Yeah. If it's nice, it says, yeah, it does this. And if it's not nice, it must, ooh, yeah. That happens all the time in our mind. And that makes for a rather biased approach to life's experiences. We can only learn from things we're actually attending to. You cannot learn if you're not attending. Well, a little bit. Yeah. So, 
some people learn. Ringo Starr learned to play drums a little bit better, you know, after many, many years of playing bad. Even he learned a little bit better. Yeah? But mostly people learn through attention, through conscious attention, preceded by curiosity and application of mind. So if we turn away from things that are unpleasant and only attend to things that are pleasant, that means that all the things that are unpleasant fall away as possibilities for investigation, for curiosity and dramatically for learning. Yeah. The result of this is we're going to really have a problem because the more I maximize pleasant things to have more pleasant experience, I have to stir away from unpleasant things with my attention. Now, the more I avoid unpleasant things, unfortunately, the more these unpleasant things have a habit of repeating themselves. Yeah. The things I do not understand, they have the fatal tendency of coming back at me on many levels. First, on an ideal level, and then on an emotional level, and finally on a bodily level. So my studious strategy to maximize pleasantness and disregard unpleasantness is unfortunately followed by more and more of experiences of unpleasantness I fail to attend to in appropriate ways. This is one of the tragedies that is implicit in something called desire, in something called tanha. There's a profound pathos in this, that the good in my life is believed to come from turning my attention to things that promise sweetness or to things that promise uh, reward, gratification. Usually it takes us about half of our life to figure this one out. And then we're trying to uh, spend the rest of the life to figure out what this uh, understanding entails us actually doing. So I'm glad you've made it earlier. Um, some of you haven't waited half into your lives uh, to do this and uh, this is to be welcomed. It means you're privileged. It means obviously you're willing to uh, work with this before you're basically dragged into it. Um, one of the strategies to work with this is called Satipatthana. It's a strategy which helps us become more aware of what's happening with attention. We all have attention, but attention is finite. It is not infinite, as time is finite. We don't have an awful lot of it. They has a certain number of hours, and your mind has a certain capacity, a certain span of attention. Um, it's not getting better over the centuries, by the way. You know, our civilization does do a good job to shorten the span of attention. Uh, what is currently happening is it's, it's getting shorter and shorter. The, I think the end point is generally a t the length of a TV commercial. Yeah, you know? That's one of the tragedies of the speed in which our, um, our minds have to process information, complexity and just diversity of stuff. Just the sheer intensity of sensory input seems to be able to diminish our capacity to actually attend to things. Also, there's people out there, highly paid, qualified, gifted people, who uh, are um, trying nothing else than to get your attention for whatever they are being hired by. You know? Because they know uh, as soon as they have your attention, they soon will have your money. 
Yeah. And unless they get your attention first, you're unlikely to give them your money. So there's many, many people out there who are trained in getting your attention somehow, by either by scaring you or by promising things to you or by titillating your senses in a way that you can't help but giving them your attention. If you do not take authorship of where this attention goes, it means that decision will be taken by other people than you. And guess what? Their plan is not to make you happy. Their plan is to make you dependent and sell, sell you stuff. Yeah? Whether that be fears and, you know, and peddle insurances to you, or whether that be the promises for gratification and sell you wine bottles, cruises, lawnmowers, whatever, um, doesn't matter much. You know? What does matter is that you lose a say in what makes where your attention goes. One of the things Buddhist meditation practice tries is it's giving you back some say in where attention goes, because what you attend to, this will become your experience. This will become your life. And this is where your freedom is, when you can choose where your attention goes and how your relationship to whatever it is your attention is on develops. It's very simple. It's almost so simple we don't dare saying it. The mind begins to resemble the things it attends to and it keeps taking up. Imagine, uh, that's why we meditate. That's why we start setting down the body. Because when the body sits still, the body's processes calm down. The breath becomes calm. Now, if your attention is on, say, something like the movement of your breathing, and a calm body produces a calm breathing and an attention staying with a calm breathing becomes rhythmical, becomes soft, becomes increasingly more refined. And because your mind attends <clears throat> with the help of the function called attention to the sensation of breathing that is gradually sweetening itself, gradually softening itself, that becomes a sweeter and softer mind. So the object of your attention starts to have a profound impact on the climate of your mind. So by attuning your attention to particular things, you convey the message of those things to the climate of your mind. With this little principle stands and falls the whole of Buddhist mind training, you know, irrespective of whether you're doing Zazen and Shikantaza, or you're doing Dzogchen and... Uh, try to get to Rigpa, or whether you're doing Satipatthana and try to identify some of the dynamics in your experiential process. So learning where this attention goes. We already have attention and it already does things. So we find out where does it go. And then we're trying to establish safe places it could go to, places that are starting to have a soothing effect on the climate of the mind. And after we've learned some of this, some continuity in this, some stability in this, some capacity to be tenacious, yeah, so to stay with a chosen object and follow the changes of that object, or to make a space of awareness become stable and solid and big. Once we've learned that, we begin to turn our attention to recurrent patterns in our experience that do stop us from actually becoming more still, more whole, more happy. And we learn to turn the light inward and try to find out what actually is happening there. Yeah? So we're actively turning our 
interest into what does already trigger my mind? What does it want? I'm not telling you you get what it wants, but I'm interested to find out what it really wants. So we begin to look at some of these movements and to some unravel what it is, what, what we dare experience is really taking place, whether we have a say in this, whether we can modulate this, whether it is true, what we instinctively believe, or whether it turns out to be not so true. Some of the stuff we instinctively believe is not true. When you see the sun going down, it feels like the sun is going down and you're standing still. We all know this is not true. So sometimes our senses seem to be cheating us. And we need to establish what is our ground. Yeah. Is what we secretly believe and which governs the movement of our attention, our expectation, uh, the experience of a reward by pleasant things, uh, the experience of unease by unpleasant things, is this really as sweet as we thought it was? Is this really as horrible as we thought it was? And do we have a say in this? Yeah. Is there something we can change in our relationship? Sati basically offers us three different strategies how to transform the experience of unsatisfactoriness. Let me just name those. <clears throat> we might have to tease that out in a later session. And um, I will basically in the morning give instructions on particular practices and in the evening often but not always give a talk on topic of Buddhist practice. Um, those of you who have joined now, um, you will have to bear with me that some of the topics basically have a larger context, but you will have enough instructions coming at you regarding the practice of Satipatthana in the morning instruction piece. And you'll have to uh, just bear with me that some of the topics addressed in the evening will uh, fall into place in a, in, a, in, a, in a little while. So, footnote closed. Um, how does Sati transform suffering? How does Sati transform the experience of unsatisfactoriness? The first one, very obvious one, is uh, Sati is capable of choosing another object of attention. We learn to choose and change objects of attention. Very simple. If I find that my mind is preoccupied with greedy or angry or depressive thoughts, I have learned to shift the focus of my attention away from the discursive aspect of my experience into, say, the somatic aspect of my experience, what I would call channel one. I switch from channel four to channel one. Channel one would be body, somatic. Channel two would be hedonic, pleasure, displeasure. Channel three would be affective, uh, mind state, emotion, uh, impulse, things like that. And channel four would be thought, concept, the discursive and cognitive dimension of the mind. So one way Sati can help transform uh, the experience of unsatisfactoriness is choosing a better vantage point to meet this current experience. So instead of continuing to think angry or greedy or depressing thoughts, I have learned to switch from channel four the thinking and discursive, to channel one, the bodily sensation connected with anger, with greed, or with depression. Yeah. For that, I need to have a vocabulary of my body, what it feels when it goes through these mind states. Yeah. This will be important, learning to identify 
the vocabulary of your body when it speaks of particular qualities of your mind. This is crucial, not just for here, but for life. Because your mind will not tell you that it is angry or depressed. It will just think angry thoughts and think depressed thoughts. Your body will tell you quite honestly what it feels. It will seize up, it will shrivel, it will contract, it will burn, it will become hot. In many ways, bodies are a lot more honest when it comes to telling what's actually happening. Minds, they're a little capricious. They can do all kinds of numbers. They can go numb or they can suddenly become distracted or they can, they can occlude particular emotions with other emotions. They can turn grief into anger or they can turn anxiety into distractedness. Uh, bodies are a lot more straightforward. If they're angry, they seize up and get hot. If they're anxious, they go numb or they burn or they get electrified. It's relatively easy to find out what's happening in your body connected to the type of emotion. Any little bit of self-observation will show you. So the first method of how sati transforms suffering is the capacity to shift attentional focus from one channel to a more effective, more useful channel. Now, because anger and anxiety live from thinking, if you spend, when you cope with anger or with anxiety, if you spend your mind's capacity to attend in channel four where thinking occurs, you're likely to feed those very states. You're all meditators for a number of retreats, you will know that. You think a tiny little angry thought and then suddenly you have two angry thoughts and then you have 200 and then you have half an hour of angry inner monologue or dialogue or you know full discussion group going on all angry voices and by the time that half hour is over you've forgotten the first voice which got you started but what is reasonably persistent is the dominant emotion of anger yeah? we all have done that too many times to um, not notice so because the anger feeds on other thoughts it is a lot better and a lot easier to cope with anger if you go to the body and just hold an unpleasant angry sensation in the pit of your stomach which you would normally not attend to if your conditioning of going away from unpleasant things would win but now that you are a trained and highly motivated meditator you have understood the connection and you're willing to bear an unpleasant angry bodily sensation because you know your chances that this anger abates are a lot better when you do that so you have learned to attend to an angry sensation in the pit of your stomach and you're bearing this for a while and since angry sensations don't proliferate like angry thoughts you don't feed your state of anger and thus that state quickly demonstrates the law of impermanence. It's not just the nice things that are impermanent, it's also the not nice things that are impermanent. Yeah? That's the good news. It's not all bad on, Buddhist, on the Buddhist front. So Impermanence is your friend. Yeah? And because you cannot per perpetually stay angry without feeding anger, that anger quickly will subside because you have now, as an object of mind, an angry sensation in the pit of your stomach and that cannot sustain itself. So two minutes later, that sensation will have faded and your anger has stopped being a problem for you. It will come back 
because the things that make us angry don't tend not to happen to live in our body, they tend to live in our heads. You know? They tend to be concocted with perception, with interpretation, with concepts we hold. But for this particular moment, you have weathered a wave of anger successfully in, say, two minutes rather than half an hour or two hours or the rest of the day. So that would be an example that sati is capable of shifting the focus of attention, shifting the what. That's an important one. There is a choice, and that choice comes through becoming aware where my attention goes and how I can shift the focus of that attention to an object of my choosing. We do have, this is one of our few freedoms we have. I can have a say where this attention goes. That's the big thing about attention. It's deliberate. It is something I can choose. I can choose it small, I can choose it big, and I can choose where. Unfortunately, much of my training, much of my background, my conditioning, but also my uh, neurobiology, does not favor the de deliberate type of attention. Psychologists call voluntary attention. Much of my uh, grooming as a human being um, favors something called involuntary attention, which seems to be readily available and doesn't entail much training. Yeah. So if you're a human being and you get born, involuntary attention is reasonably quickly available. It doesn't in, in, involve an awful lot of studious and laborious training, while voluntary attention does. Yeah. It's harder to attend voluntarily than to attend involuntarily. For involuntary attention, all it takes is something loud, shrill, sudden, unforeseen, something beckoning with gratification, something uh, exceedingly unpleasant, something that scares us, um, and our involuntary attention goes there. Yeah. Quite quickly, it feels as if we're pulled towards that, as if our attention is pulled out of us in terms of involuntary attention. Voluntary attention is hard to work. It takes training, the development is rather slow and sometimes not spectacular. The capacity to stay with something on the basis not of the thing itself, but on the basis of my choice to stay with that thing, takes a lot of effort and work and training. So the second way how mindfulness can transform suffering and unsatisfactoriness is not the shift in the change of what the shift of the object, namely body instead of thought in our little example. The second way of transformation suffering sati does by changing the how. It changes the relationship rather than the object. So I can learn to jump out of a habituated response to say boredom or to say something that is grating in my sensory channels or something that I feel afraid of. Instead of trying to run away and not feel, I can choose to stay there and bear it. Instead of reacting with aversion and anger and dislike, I can consciously make it a task to give my attention and not react, not indulge in aversion, not try to go away there. Say, yes, you're not pleasant, 
And now, normally I would go away from you because you don't promise any great gratifications. But now, I actually choose to stay with you despite my conditioning. I choose to be friendly with you, although habitually I would be aversive with you. And when we do that, often dramatic things happen. When we just go beyond our initial conditioned response to things of our experience, suddenly something dramatic happens. You know, what was painful becomes less painful. What turned out to be offensive turns out to be quite insightful. What scared me actually isn't so scary anymore, but if I go a little closer, it turns out to be quite sad, actually. So, the second way in which sati helps us transform suffering is it transforms the relationship we extend to the object of our experience. And in a shift in that relationship, we suddenly experience a change of what we believed to be experiencing in the first place. The construction of our reality is experiencing a shift. This is more difficult than the first strategy. Yeah? It entails not just being able to direct our attention to something different, it entails that we uh, jump out of automatisms of our mind. It jumps out of conditioned emotional patterns. We all have uh, a lot of patterning in our experience. A patterning that is very easy to see is how we walk. That's how we recognize each other. When we're too far to recognize each other's faces, then we, then I know, you know, when I walk up the corridor, I see, uh, I may not see who this is, but I recognize this is, um, this is, this is Dolores's gait, or, or this is Chris's type of walking. Yeah, it's easy to recognize that. We, we all do that. We know our friends walking from a long distance. When you see friends walking, you know from quite a distance. You recognize how they walk. Now imagine as easily discernible as a gate is, even long distance. In the same way, we have patterns of emotional changes. Yeah? We have emotional habits as we have walking habits. Not just that, we have perceptual habits. We have attentional habits. We have loads of habits. And all these habits secretly construe a particular world which we inhabit. I said it last week and I like to repeat it because it strikes me as profoundly important. It is more easy to believe something than not to believe it. This is the case because uh, the various systems of our mind are nested. The, sense, the, the, the simplest most system is our sensory apparatus. And what our senses tell us, although it is not necessarily the objective truth about what's going on out there in the world, what our senses tell us generally is highly relevant for our lives. So we have a, a habit of believing what our senses tell us. Yeah? I believe when my hand tells me of hardness, I believe this hand. Because my sensory system is the root system, and on top of that sensory system is my perceptual system. Yeah. Perceptions are nothing else than the serialized connection of sense data. When my eye tries to recognize your face, then it does many, many little movements around your mouth, your nose, your eyes, and it serializes 
visual data. And then at some point, enough of these data are collated and it says, oh, this is Peter, this is Susie, this is uh, Rolf. Yeah. And at that moment, I have a perception. I have a number of sense data. I have scanned your face. And then something rummages in my memory banks and you come up as Rolf. Yeah, there's enough similarity there to uh, something I have archived as Rolf. And now this, what I experience now, is close enough to Rolf for to become Rolf. Yeah? At that moment, this is what Buddhist psychology calls perception. A moment when something immediate and new, namely my sense data, is connected with something old I fish out of my archives, namely the name Rolf. And also Rolf's story, whether I like him, how he looked yesterday, how much money, how much money he owes me, uh, whether he wants to run off with my wife, or this kind of thing. All this comes in. Yeah, This is packed, packaged into Rolf. It doesn't say so, but it has the flavor. Yeah? The Rolfness uh, is immediately imposed now on that face. Even though Rolf is willing here to make amends, to give me all the money he owes me, and he has come out to be gay, yeah? And he's not going to run off, yeah? Even though this may be the case, still the story is there, yeah? Now, this is a critical moment in mind training because it's where something new, namely the face that has appeared, and something old, namely the story that is stored in my mind, possibly with many distortions, is baked together, yeah? That's a critical moment. And uh, at that moment, I start to manifest habits, how I hold stories, how I hold perceptions, is tacitly glued onto that face. Yeah. So every time I meet something I believe to recognize, I actually lay into that apparent recognition all the story I connect with this particular person into that situation. Now that means that um, everything I've ever felt about Rolf, everything I've ever thought about Rolf is likely to be part of my experience of Rolf now. Certainly his, this can be wonderful. You know, if you love somebody, this is wonderful. Then you look at this person and you know, uh, you know this person. This is very, very deep what you see. It's not just a face. You see uh, the depth of your relationship. If you love somebody, then you do update a lot of these perceptions. That's what we do when we love. We give a lot of attention, and because we give a lot of attention, our, our, up, our perceptual updates are very rapid, high succession, high turnover, many, many back patches, many, many updates, many, many bug fixes. Yeah? This little consolidation of that image. So we, if we love, we give lots of attention, and we free somebody from the image we have made of him or of her. Yeah. We acknowledge the fluidity, the miracle of that being in front of us. That's why it is so difficult to say of somebody we love how they really are in three adjectives. It's very difficult to say that. If you ever try to sum up a loved one in three, three words, very difficult. Now try the same with somebody whom you don't like. Yeah? It's dead easy. Yeah? Somebody whom you don't like, it's dead easy to say three eyes, you know. Really easy. Chuck, chuck, chuck. Three brush stroke and a coarse caricature, right there, you know. Always been that way, that way now, will never change. Yeah. 
Why is that? It is because we do not give much attention to somebody whom we don't love, to somebody whom we don't like. Because it's unpleasant, we try to avoid attending to them, and thereby we do not update our perceptions. That means we keep, whenever we meet them, we keep meeting, not the person, but we keep meeting our old memories of them. We keep meeting our old perception. So the poor guy never gets through anymore because of that one time when he stood on our toes in the yellow elevator. Yeah? Yeah, he's always a crude guy. He doesn't know. He's got lousy motor skills. And he, you know, he thinks himself to be good, too good to say sorry. Yeah? And you know, six months later, you still think that when you see him in the corridor. So that is a perceptual habit. And on the second layer, how sati transforms our experience, how sati transforms suffering, sati goes beyond that perceptual habit. Yeah? It, it is willing to acknowledge the habit and it is willing to go counter to the habit's tendency. In other words, what evokes our disinterest now is something that we voluntarily give our interest to. Something that invokes our, evokes our aversion is something we are willingly bearing and trying to extend at least the permission for coexistence. Yeah. That's as far down as, 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 as meta goes. Yeah. That's the cheapest offer you, meta can make, offering coexistence. I'm not going to move you out of my experience. Any lower than that, it's no longer meta. Yeah? That's the cheapest you can do as a meta practitioner offering something coexistence. You don't have to love it, you don't have to gush, be gushing in your affections there, but say, okay, you're allowed to exist. I'm not gonna push you out of my world, out of my life, out of my attention. Knee pain, fair enough, can't really be very passionate about you, but you can stay there. You, know? you can stay in that corner of my knee right now. That's as, that's as much as I can offer. That's metta. That's where metta begins. From there on, you kind of start building up. But we'll do that another evening. So, second type of transformation sati offers is it changes the how I relate to this experience. And in doing so, it is willing to go beyond the perceptual habituation that takes place. Third type, a third way in which sati transforms uh, uh, suffering is uh, even more difficult than that one. It entails even more acknowledgement. In the third type, we're neither changing the what, nor do we change the how, but we're changing the place where we come from. In other words, it changes an understanding of the position the subject in experience takes, has. Yeah? It is a shift in my notion of who I am and who that self is that is the subject of my experiencing it is a shift in the perspective onto the experiencer of this situation. Now this is generally a little more tricky. It generally needs uh, looking more deeply into how this notion of self is construed, uh, its conditionality, um, its fictitionality, its contingency. Um, why in the first place we would invest in something that doesn't exist and that takes a lot of energy and effort to maintain some of our psychological reasons why we do that and this is a larger project yeah number three uh, dimension of transforming suffering through mindfulness takes us into looking in a long and sober ways at how 
our self-construct has come into being, what such a self-construct serves, uh, what purpose this is, and um, you know to what extent this is successful. It succeeds in getting us uh, to feel, say, the safety uh, that is often involved in there, or the stability or the continuity that we generally derive from the postulate of a self that exists through time remaining identical with itself. Obviously this opens up wide perspectives because it turns out that the position from which we actually view or experience the uh, subject with which usually we identify is a lot less solid, a lot less reliable and a lot less tangible than we initially thought. And uh, by softening around this, by acknowledging the dynamic and process nature of this position. Uh, usually we meet a lot of uncertainty, but also a lot of freedom, because uh, we are very much imprisoned by our notions of who we are. You know, we're very much uh, cornered, and we're experiencing the world from that corner. And, you know, sometimes it is the insistence to be in that corner which makes the world look the way it does. Yeah? This is kind of like... So if you're afraid that the world does not love you and you keep asking the world whether it surely does love you or whether it doesn't show any signs in doubt about loving you, you know, if you keep asking that the world, then at some point you will get a, an unnerved response back and say, no, no, I don't love you, really. You get on my nerves right now. Yeah? So sometimes it is just the choice of corner and the choice by which we try to verify that what we fear most does not happen, that we actually bring this on. Yeah. So if we fear rejection, we will pester people long enough till they start rejecting us. If we feel overwhelmed, you know, we're going anxiously about establishing boundaries and controls until uh, we're getting so much on our world's nerves that they actually say, yes, go away. Yeah, and we feel, we feel justifiably overwhelmed. Right? Or if we fear tremendous amount of abandonment and keep reassuring that everybody is there and nobody is going away, you know, and uh, at some point, you know, people find us a little wearisome. So they actually might say, ah, I need a break now, sorry, and you're not going to come with me right now. So, And we in some way have proven our worst fears simply by strategizing to not experience what we are most afraid of. Yeah? We all know that. And so it's the choice of our corner and it's our anxious attempts to not experience what we're most afraid of, that sometimes we bring precisely that experience on. Yeah. So the third dimension of how sati transforms suffering is deepening into the dynamic process nature of the place where we come from, yeah, where this experience has its subjective side of the field. Learning to live with the openness, but also the lack of definition. Learning to live with the, the, uh, the morphing capacity of this particular space. And learning to hold the truth of its insubstantiality, which is a little bit 
eerie to start with until you begin to relax into this as a possibility, as a freedom, rather than as a threat of non-existence. Yeah. This third type of transformation of dukkha through sati is the most challenging, the most it's the longest project, and in any case it's the most promising because it doesn't just involve the manipulating of an object that can be optimized, or it doesn't just optimize our relationship to that object or process, it actually learns, teaches us to deepen into the truth of what's there in the first place that is actually happening. So Satipatthana teachings, the culture of um, mindfulness on the basis of identifying and orienting within different channels of experience, body, kaya, uh, vedana, hedonic dimension connected with pleasure and displeasure, citta, the third channel, the affective dimension of our experience, and dhamma, the fourth channel, the cognitive dimension of our experience, are the grounds in which we learn to make a mindfulness grow strong, grow mobile, grow versatile, and grow attuned. We all are attentive, at least topically and episodically, but there is a huge gap between an episodic type of attention that snaps from one promise of gratification to the next, and an embodied continuous mindfulness, you know, which is capable of sustained relationship to the processes that we experience. So we'll do some building of exercises together, practicing. I would like those of you who have arrived today, uh, take it slow. We are, you have a fortnight, settle in, uh, take up the old disciplines of arriving, you know, clarifying your intentions so much as one by marking moments of beginnings. Yeah. This is a beginning. This is a retreat. This is the first evening of your retreat. Uh, soon, uh, you know, you will go to your room, just identify your attentions when you put down your head uh, and do free yourself from having to fulfill various programs on that retreat. Allow yourself to be on that retreat and meet whatever comes up in your mind and in your heart on that retreat. Acknowledge what you wish, hope, fear. Acknowledge the little parallel programs you may have already in your head, you know, how much physical exercise you do, how many letters you want to write, how many big life questions you want to solve before you go back out there. Well, which chronologies you want to really work through, um, which books you want to read, uh, which sections of talks you want to listen to, all this. Acknowledge this and realize it's probably too much. You have a say in this, but you don't have the only say in this. I would suggest give yourself the freedom, particularly the freedom from your electronic devices, and uh, give yourself the freedom to just follow the program here. Um, I'm going to put up here on this, didn't, I was too late so I didn't manage to put it up, I'm going to put up a, a slightly different schedule for the yogis who have arrived today. There will be a little more structure than you may have seen uh, is on the board there. I would wish that you take part in that structure so that you start off in this first week with several group sittings a day. Make use of this group that already exists. Make use of the vibe you can chime into. 
and uh, just share into this. Come and use the presence of others who practice and uh, join into this. You know, there is like in a big flock, once the movement is, is established, it's easier for the individual to flow with that movement. Uh, there will be plenty of guidance, uh, some guided meditations early in the morning, uh, some some instructions at 8:30, and uh, you know every every so often a, a talk in the night. I will hope to see you all twice a week, once as a group and once individually, and um, you'll see the food is reliably good and nourishing here, and the conditions are about as good as it gets. You know, I know many centers, and this one. Uh, it's hard to hard to beat, to be honest with you. So I hope you have a good retreat, and uh, wish you a good night. So take a good night's sleep. We'll meet again tomorrow morning for six, taking refuge in half an hour sitting. Yeah. And I'll hang up the new the new program should be up there in about ten minutes or so. Yeah. Welcome on board. <laughs>